0: Today, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at the Netflix documentary ZZ Top, that little old band from Texas. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm welcoming you back Justin Bankston to continue our series on We Love Rock Docs with a look at ZZ Top, that little old band from Texas, the Netflix special that came out last year. Justin, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. I love rock movies. And as you know, I really love ZZ Top.
2: Me too, me too. So this ought to be a good one. And I think I think the thing, and I, I don't like quoting Josh Hom of Queens of the Stone Age, but he, he has a comment early on that I think sums up sort of the mystique of ZZ Top. He's like, the beards, the choreographed moves, they kept you from knowing who they really are. And that is the key to this band. It seems simple, just that little old band from Texas playing some blues and Boogie. But actually, it's very deep and heavy stuff, and Billy Gibbons is a maestro of mystery and a a gnomic figure of never lets on what he's thinking or what's really going on behind the scenes. And this movie... As delightful as it is, as much as I enjoyed it and gave me the warm fuzzies, looking back on it months later and after, you know, read that book, uh, I'm also referring to the book ZZ Top Behind the Scenes from Blues to Boogie to Beards by David Blaney, who is their lighting tech, I guess, and Roadie for a long time, just loaned me the book. Um, Yeah, I mean, they reveal almost nothing in this totally delightful uh, documentary
1: yeah it's pretty amazing. Uh as you point out, it's been kind of their mo the whole time, and Billy, especially, you know, uses this whole little old band from Texas, and oh, we just play a little blues and oh, we just sing about anatomy or he's got this whole line of talk that downplays everything that's happening and deflects your attention from anything except this sort of simple sort of cartoony story that he wants you to see but there it really is there's a lot going on and what's amazing about this film is as you said they managed to continue that deflection right on through while being extremely charming and personable such that you barely notice that that they're getting over on you again
2: yes it's a very skilled three card money game and And when you watch it the second time, you'll notice that Dusty and Frank do almost all the talking. When Billy talks, he never says anything about himself, ever, in the whole movie. And then when we found that uh, VH1 documentary from the 90s, which was shorter than the usual VH1 documentary all of the choice anecdotes in the Netflix movie were on page one in the nineties with, I mean, with just a one or two exceptions and they're all about Bill Ham, actually. And I guess you couldn't speak about Bill Ham when he was alive, but he passed away a few years ago. And I don't know, I have to say, I'm so glad they made this though, especially while Dusty was still alive. It was such a shock to lose him. I'm sure it was a shock for the band and, and his family and everybody else. Um, but it's really good to have this, that they, they, put a really nice career capstone with this with this movie, even as unrevealing as it is. It's a great package, tells their story. I mean, this is a band that has avoided interviews, has there's never been a major biography written about them. This documentary is probably the most access anybody's ever going to get. So I'm glad they did it while they could, and I think it's a worthy capstone to their career.
1: 100%. It's really... I mean the guys are such a delight and you get to spend this time with them and it's it's just lovely.
2: It it absolutely is and Frank and Dusty are both hilarious and charming and Billy is as well but they 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 have more meat on the bones of their stories than he does. Well let's go get into the meat of it. Right from the beginning um the 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 documentary starts with with an old blues song playing which is totally fitting. It's um uh, henry thomas texas easy street and you know that's that's what the band is known for as dusty hill says we never said we were a blues band we're a rock band that happens to play some blues licks but they're steeped in the blues and it came from listening to border radio stations like XERF that used to blast 500,000 watts from as close to the u.s border as they could get So you could hear the things in Michigan. So anybody in Texas just got saturated with this stuff, and they played a lot of blues programming. And a little secret Billy Gibbons doesn't want people out there um, to know, is, uh, according to David Blaney, is that his housekeeper, his African-American housekeeper, hipped him to a lot of this stuff. So um, very much shades of Mike Bloomfield, the, the great Chicago Jewish guitarist who became an acolyte of muddy waters and the blues thing, but there was always this sort of aura of poor little rich boy around Michael Bloomfield, because everybody knew the story. Billy Gibbons keeps that story close to the vest.
1: He does, and you know, he absolutely came from privilege, and his his dad was the conductor of the local symphony. Like, a, it's a musical family. B, it's a it's a a, a family of means. Uh, and so for him to sort of you know, he immediately crosses the tracks as quick as he can and gets into, uh, you know, all the most, all the scariest music he can find.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and um, supposedly it was seeing a BB King recording session live there in Houston um, on Duke Records, on Rovi's Duke Records, that that converted him into a major blues head for live. But the other influence they get to really quickly is Elvis Presley. And Dusty Hills was absolutely a king Elvis Presley fan. It claims in the doc that at one point he had to have a whole separate dressing room just to keep all the Elvis memorabilia that he took on tour with him. um, Space. So I think that those two things are two big chunks of the recipe, but there's two other big chunks I want to bring up. Not just the roots rock and roll of Elvis, not just the classic blues, but one they didn't mention in the documentary at all is the Beatles. And I've seen Frank Beard say in other places that the night he saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, the next day he was after his parents to buy him a drum kit. And The Moving Sidewalks, Billy Gibbons Band, covered I Want to Hold Your Hand in a really funky version. So we know that they were massive Beatle heads, but they don't mention that at all in the documentary. And then the other one they mentioned, and they go out of their way to mention, and I'm glad they did and they give the elevators some screen time, is the 13th Floor Elevators, who are seen today as the psychedelic cult band that never really made it big. But the reality was in the 60s in Texas, they made it really big. They were playing major venues. They Even while they were still playing clubs in Austin – entire buses of fraternities from TCU and SMU would drive down to to Austin. They were an immediate sensation in Texas and changed the whole game for every bar band and every wannabe kid group in Texas. Um, You know, we talked about the MC5 last time, and it's very much the same dynamic where you've got kids in Houston, kids in Dallas, kids in Austin, putting together bands, trying to be the Beatles, playing sock hops and VFW halls and, and, you know armories and national guard armories and stuff like that and um all three of the, the guys were in bands like that billy in houston and dusty and frank in dallas and um quickly hook up dusty and frank hook up by the time they're 15 and i, I of the dusty stories like he grows up really rough in East Dallas. And, and this was another thing I picked up from the Roadies book. Richard Speck, the infamous mass killer, was one of his classmates. <laughs> so that's <telling> you <laughs> the kind of neighborhood he grew up in. And uh, But he was singing and playing for money by age eight. His older brother Rocky was kind of the maestro. And I love the stories that he tells about Rocky. First, Rocky announces they need a bass player. Next thing Dusty knows, he's got a bass strapped to him. Then Rocky tells him... Well, there are a band called Lady Wild and the Warlocks featuring a young female singer from Liverpool, England, which was big doings and DFW uh, post Beatles. And they 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 play a gig with Frank Beard's band in Fort Worth. Rocky tells Dusty that's going to be our new drummer and. You know, Frank's describing himself as a total rube wearing, you know, white socks and loafers and everything. And Dusty says almost the same stuff. This guy's in white socks and they're wearing the, the classic nylon um blues player socks, which totally blew Frank Beard away. I, I found all that stuff totally charming. But it also gets to the nut of it, which is that Dusty and Frank grew up playing together from the age of fifteen. You cannot get a tighter rhythm section than that.
1: Yeah. And they both tell the same story about how when they first played a note together, it was just clear, this is my guy. And there's just nothing like that with the rhythm section, you know, like they, they played together a long time, but also it was right from the get go. Uh, and the the Rocky Erickson thing is really interesting because you're right. He was tectonic in Texas and had a huge effect on the West coast too. But, uh, and they don't bring up, bring it up in the movie, and they don't talk about it in a lot of things. They talk about how much moving sidewalks is obviously influenced by the elevators. But American Blues, when you go back and listen to that, oh, very yeah. much, very much 13th floor elevators, like a direct 13th floor elevators vibe going on there. And so Rocky and the elevators are really like percolating through this whole story
2: yeah and 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 american blues was the band that dusty and frank were in they basically just changed the name of the warlocks and became american blues and they dyed their hair blue which Uh, uh, amazing they didn't get killed (laughs) in dallas in the 60s but let's go ahead and hear our first song this is from the first easy top album and it's called something somebody else been shaking your tree that was Somebody Else Been Shaking Your Tree from the first CZ Top album. And um, classic example, tell us why you picked that one. What should people be listening for? Well, this is
1: track one, album one. And it immediately shows the sophistication in the way that Billy arranges electric guitars on an album. And it from the very get-go, track one, album one, this is a singular sounding band and people talk about it as this blues band, blues band, blues band. But what's happening when you listen to this track, there's all these guitar parts and they're arranged so carefully. Not only are there multiple guitar parts, but the way they're arranged in space and the way each of them has a different texture and a different tone and, the, and how uh, concise and clear the rhythms of each part are it's it's a tour de force and it's track one album one
2: absolutely and they're going to talk and we'll get to it later about the guy who engineered that album for him in tyler texas robin hood Bryan studios um but first let's a little bit more about the background another thing billy gibbons doesn't mention that i thought was just amazing was his dad hooked him up with percussion lessons from tito puente when he was a kid but but so he was headed in that direction until he saw B.B. King playing, and then he, then he had to have a guitar. So, yeah, Billy was made for this. He was prepared for this. There are stories about Billy Gibbons would just play the most complicated chords he could think of with his dad having his back turned to him, and his dad would tell him what chord it was and then name every single note. So that's the kind of musical education Billy got, and then top it off – with Studying at the Feet of the Great bluesman Lightning Hopkins, B.B. B. King, all these guys were in Houston all the time, and he saw them every chance he got. Plus, he's out there playing with a bunch of bands, even before the moving sidewalks. He's in multiple bands playing all the sock hops and all that stuff. And that's one of the things that's key for these bands that came up in the 60s is they got to play live for paying audiences in a way that bands in the 70s really, really had to struggle to get. And so, you know, that's this is... A key thing, and ZZ Top is fully formed and ready to go by 1971, but we've got to introduce one more major character, really the fourth corner of ZZ Top, and that's Bill Hamm, their manager, who, like I said, passed away a few years ago. And They use animation in this whenever they're talking about Bill Hamm, and and it's effective and good. This has been a proven rock documentary tactic since The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Uh, directed by my friend Jeff Ferdzig way back in 2001. And so it's just a great way to fill in when you don't have footage and you don't have the living person to tell the story. It's a great way to tell the Bill Ham stories. And you know Hook's Up, he was a guy who'd kind of been a Pat Boone-style singer in the 50s, put out a single, I think one, maybe two. Um, but successful in business, wanted to get into the rock business, found Billy Gibbons and the Moving Sidewalks, I think right around the time that they're their organ player, bassist, got drafted, and so they're falling apart. But he he can spot Billy Gibbons as a talent, and, and they hook up. The big handshake, the son, I'm going to make you a star. Cigars, everything else. And Bill Ham is absolutely the strategic architect of the success of ZZ Top. Billy Gibbons is the musical architect. Dusty and Frank are the foundation, but Bill Ham is the strategist the man behind the scenes and he's the guy who crafted this mysterioso approach he's the guy who forbid them from doing interviews the guy who forbid them from jamming on stage with other bands from hanging out in clubs anything tv appearances radio guest spots they only played live you either had to buy the record or buy a ticket if you wanted to see and hear zz top so just a genius and since zz top was his sole major client You don't hear a lot about Bill Hamm, but I'd put him up there with any of the majors, Bill O'Coyne of Kiss, um, I'm blanking on the guy who managed Alice Cooper, Peter Grant of Led Zeppelin. I think uh, he could hang with any of his contemporaries. Maybe not Peter Grant. I mean, Led Zeppelin's at another level, but one of the best rock business minds of the 70s and 80s.
1: Absolutely. And what has always struck me about that is how sort of simpatico he and Billy seem to be like the whole time. They seem to have different sort of approaches to life, but like together they sort of seem to agree on what can work to make ZZ Top what it needs to be.
2: Yeah, absolutely. They were the fundamental alliance. And something they don't go into very much in the movie is that the band was named and formed before Frank and Dusty came on the scene. They had um, uh, Billy Etheridge, who played with Stevie Ray Vaughan at the time, um, actually Greg Mitchell was the original um, drummer he'd been in the elevators and and he was um, replaced by Frank Beard and Etheridge wouldn't sign a contract with London Records so he was out and, and Frank Beard brought in Dusty Hill at that point point. and the way they tell the story is kind of like Frank Beard showing up in Houston and twisting Billy's arm to get him to a rehearsal studio but according to uh, the book I referenced earlier it was Billy Etheridge who would played with Frank, and he wanted to get a Dallas guy in there and, and sabotage the auditions for all the other drummers who, who tried out, and and, um, and got that guy in. And on their first single, though, I should mention Lanier Gregg, the organist, because their first single, Salt Lick, it almost sounds like Deep Purple. It's a really heavy organ-driven sound. It, it's it's not it's totally recognizable as Easy Top because you got Billy on guitar and Billy on vocals, and it's his song. But Lanier Gregg was doing some interesting stuff, but it just didn't quite click to have... They needed a bass player. And so that's when they, they canned him and brought in Billy Etheridge and then uh, replaced Greg Mitchell. And I, I was curious, like they said, Greg Mitchell left to audition for Mork and Mindy. Mork and Mindy didn't come on the air until like 1978. So I don't know. I, I don't know if that was a diss or what, but it's kind of... Kind of a long reach to, to dis an ex-colleague fifty years later like that. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he did audition for Morgan Mindy, but um, you know. Either way, I think it's him. I Go think
1: ahead. it's fair to say that Billy has a a very unique relationship with reality.
2: Yes, and truth, and everything else, and just a classic Texas character who the kind of guy you ask him about. Him him, he's gonna start telling you about you pretty quickly and and also notorious for starting bullshit stories and then handing it off to Frank or Dusty to finish a, a, another tactic of his. So just a classic Texas character uh, if 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 you live in Texas, you meet these guys that, that that are wily and cryptic and never let on to what they're thinking and the line between truth and bullshit is always thin always thin and very permeable
1: yeah it keeps you on your toes it makes it fun it
2: it absolutely does it absolutely does texans are you know like asking texans for directions is always a roll of the dice because you just never know when we might decide to screw with you for fun (laughs) so but they, they they tell the story the the origin story is they bring dusty hill in it's an immediate fit they start playing Shuffle and C, which is a song off their first album, and they jam on it for three hours. And from that point on, they know they've got the lineup. And they do. They lasted 50 years, one of the longest runs in rock history for a single line. I think the longest run in rock history for a single lineup band. And they didn't last quite as long as Fat Domino and Dave Bartholomew. That's probably the longest running team in rock and roll ever. But these three guys uh, put it together. But let's go ahead and hear just got paid off their second just got paid off of Rio Grande Mud, their second album, and tell us why you picked this particular track.
1: Because it smokes. Like, it's one of my very favorite ZZ Top songs, and I think it's also, it's interesting to me, there's this sort of ingrained story that there's these first two records, but they're only so-so, and then Trey Sombres shows up, you know, and blows everything out of the water, and while that's true commercially, those first two records artistic achievements—they're fantastic records—and so I wanted to highlight uh, tunes from those earlier records to sort of like go against that story that that they didn't have it together yet.
2: Yeah, and and Rio Grande Mud is there's a clear progression from the first album to the second album, and Rio Grande Mud kicks off with Francine and Just Got Paid, and it's just it's, it's a killer opening. Uh, lineup. But before we get too far into their career, I want to go back to recording their first album, because I talked to Robin Bryans, who was the engineer at Robin Hood Studios in Tyler, Texas, where they cut their first single, first two albums, I think part of their third album, and he tells this long tale about how Bill Hamm wanted to get a new sound, he was really desperate to find it, some way to make guitar, bass, and drums with heavy amplification, sound different from the Cream and Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin albums that had already come out, and they tried everything and couldn't find it. And Bill Ham was forbidding overdubs, which, you know, no one's easy to hop as we do. Like what? And and so Robin uh, Robin Bryan tells the story about how they tricked Bill Ham into going out to barbecue to the next county. And um, while he's gone, they have like an hour and 15 minutes. They they do a trick where they, you know, overdub the guitar, play play the play the song, knock the strings slightly out of tune so that you get a bigger vibration spectrum. Lay down the overdubs, you know, flange it a little bit, panoramic sound. By the time Bill Hamm comes back, they play the track for him. He's blown away, loves it, you know, and the rest is history. So. That, I think, is one of the few new anecdotes in this movie, and, and it's a classic.
1: It is great, but it's also another example of Billy laying off all the credit for really what's like at the basis of his sound on these first five records. <clears throat> and he wants to lay that all off on Robin Hood and say, yeah, this is the guy who came up with that. But when you go back and listen to that first record or the second record... And you listen to the way the guitars are arranged, it is not a recording engineer who went in there and like put that sophistication in there. Like it's a guitar player, it's Billy Gibbons who has that ear and has that artistic flair to do that. And yet yeah. he completely lays it all off on the recording engineer, which is just classic Billy.
2: Yes, 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 indeed. Yes, indeed. And so they get into the narrative and they tell the story of of their early touring days, how they played out-of-the-way towns. They play out-of-the-way venues. They tell the story of the time they played in Alvin, Texas, and one kid showed up. That happened in 1969. They make it sound like it happened a little bit later, but they played the full show, gave him an encore, bought him a Coke, says that, that he still shows up to this day. But, you know, and and if you read the... Laney book, the the one by the roadie, he's got some amazing tales of some funky gigs that they played uh, and all kinds of dives, you know, all over, uh, you know, on Indian Reservation in New Mexico, just all kinds of crazy adventures um, in these early days. And Bill Hamm was just dead set on getting them out there, getting them in front of the people. And that's what you had to do in the 70s. There was limited FM radio, virtually no television, very few magazines, and Ham has already closed magazines and radio off. He'll he'll let them play their records on radio, but they don't do the regular radio promotions most bands do. So you just had to get out there and tour. There's no MTV, there's no internet. It was just slogging and bogging through. And and one of their first big breaks was playing the Memphis Blues Festival in 1971. This wasn't the first blues festival. I think it was the fourth or fifth. I want to say. I think it started in '67 or '68, but Johnny Winter had played there in '69, a highly touted major label Texas bluesman, and had had a pretty big backlash for showing up with all his amps. And you know, after Muddy Waters is playing with a, you know, small amplifier sitting on a chair, here comes Johnny Winter with the stacks. And so it's interesting that just a couple years later, ZZ Top sneaks in, has even bigger stacks. But their beloved, like, Furry Lewis is out on stage, you know, egging him on, and they were stuck, snuck kind of at the end of the bill, because the promoter, according to Billy Gibbons, hired him not knowing they were white, because he hadn't turned the record over, which totally stretches credulity to me, um, and, you know, went over really big, and, and Tennessee, from that point on, becomes a second home base um, for ZZ Top. They're going to go to Ardent Studios, which famous for albums such as Led Zeppelin 3, which is what drew them there. It's also the place Big Star recorded their classic albums, and that's where they meet Terry Manning, the engineer, who's going to be with them all the way through the 80s. And that's the album that they cut, Trace Ombres, there in Arden Studios. And it is just a bigger, bolder, more badass sound. And they improve the songwriting just a little bit, have a few more hits on Trace Ombres. But it's, like you said, it's not a quantum leap. It's just a, a slight tweak but everything really came into focus and broken big lagrange is a top 40 hit and album went platinum and and they're major rock stars in the early 70s
1: yeah the record went gold but it is like like you said it, it all kind of comes together but it's it's a musical they move it just a little bit forward musically they move it a little bit forward sound wise at ardent and then i think more than anything it's their third record and they're starting to get out there so like People are ready for this record, right? So it, it, they've built up this audience of touring. They've they've been uh, out there working, and so with this record sort of lands in a in an environment that's ready for a ZZ Top record and ready for a good one, and they really deliver it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Francine had been a minor hit off their second album as well, so radio was primed and they're big. And then they get a really big opportunity to open for the Rolling Stones in Hawaii, a three night stand and uh, you know massive massive opportunity and i I love dusty telling the story because he talks about how they had heard stevie wonder had opened for the stones on that same tour and been booed and the way dusty says it you know he knows exactly how great stevie wonder is he's like stevie wonder they booed stevie wonder
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's like oh my god who these people are animals
2: yes and uh and you know but they go out there they're dust in their duds. They get their cowboy hats on, go out there. They're scared and nervous. The crowd is shocked into silence by their appearance. And, and you know, I think it's Frank who says that they're thinking, oh, fuck, it's a country band. <laughs> 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 so they kick it with the rock and, and and get over big, like get encores all three nights. And they're very proud of that, deservedly. So you also got to, I mean, the racism angle and the fact that they were playing heavy, hard rock and Stevie was playing, some funk but also a lot of pop at that point in his career. So it's not that shocking that Stevie Wonder was booed by this crowd. It reminded me of like when Grandmaster Flash opened for the Clash or Prince got booed off stage opening for the Rolling Stones ten years later. So Rolling Stones crowds were not always open to the acts that the Rolling Stones wanted to feature, but they were very open to ZZ Top for, you know, partly because ZZ Top was kick ass. And and so they were they were awesome. But let's take a quick sponsor break and come back and talk about the second half of ZZ Top's career. And they do a pretty artful segue when they talk about that Hawaiian stand because they they talk about how they get encores all three nights. Then they talk about how the, the reviews came out in the newspapers and they're not even mentioned, which is worse than getting panned. You're just completely ignored. And, So then they go into a bit where they talk about how they were dissed by the critics, they weren't in Los Angeles or New York and and refused to go there to kowtow, and even the term little old band from Texas was initially a diss when when it was first printed, and they adopted it and made made it their, you know, it's the title of the movie. But they brought in a guy named Howard Bloom, who was, you know, just one of the great publicists of 70s rock, had worked for a ton of bands and helped them, you know, he he describes his struggle and in interviewing the band and trying to figure out what's my angle here, what's my angle, and he finally settles on Texas, which is seems like a pretty obvious thing, but I think it was a pretty good insight that, that, you know, this isn't a southern rock band. This is a Texas band. And and here's Texas. And, and it was perfect timing. This is before Dallas, the TV soap opera, came on. And Texas is about to have a big renaissance urban cowboy. Uh, Willie and Waylon are, are getting big around this time. And ZZ Top helped bring Texas to the top, as they say.
1: Yeah, I loved that, that sort of part of the movie. And just thinking about, you know in my, as long as I've been aware of this stuff, Texas has sort of had like a prominent place and of its own and culture. But thinking about it, you know, this was before urban cowboy It was before Dallas. It was, they were sort of right on the forefront of, you know, Texas as a concept, you know, in culture. And they talk about how, and then all of a sudden you could buy a cowboy hat, you know, on the lower East side. And, uh, it's really interesting and, and it makes a lot of sense to, to imagine like ZZ top sort of a using Texas as sort of a marketing hook and then being part of like the, the sort of of Texas sort of finding its place in, in our culture.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Cause you know, in the sixties, the Kennedy assassination happening in Dallas it was a big demerit for Texas. And, the image of Texas was basically Jed Clampett of the Beverly Hillbillies, just you know, just yokels rich with oil that they didn't earn. They just found in the ground and and that kind of thing. So I think the fact that ZC Top was one of the top rock bands in the world helped sort of rehabilitate Texas image, but still had the Texas flair. And that leads, of course, to the classic worldwide Texas tour, which was a massive tour. They went on from like 76 all the way through 78. With livestock, buffalo, steers, vultures, rattlesnakes, tarantulas. Uh, I think Frank said seven trucks worth of thing, <laughs> and I love it the way Frank describes it. Some idiot, and I don't remember which one of it, us it was, suggested <laughs> bring the buffalo. <laughs> and yeah, and it was it was a kind of overly ambitious tour. It cost him a fortune, and they were big, but like you say, uh, Trey Tresombras has only gone gold, not platinum, and Tejas, the follow-up album, a bit of a letdown, much mellower sounds, more country, kind of like the hidden uncle in their discography that just kind of tucked away. You, You hear a lot about the stuff before that, you hear a lot about the stuff after it, but at that point, their momentum was big enough as a live act. It didn't really matter if the album was a bit of a dud and just got bigger and bigger and bigger and then they stop and have to take a break. Thoughts on the Texas tour? Anything else to add about that? I
1: mean, the Worldwide Texas tour is just an incredible piece of hubris uh, and an incredible sort of rock and roll achievement. You know what I mean? These guys did this thing to the nines with the Texas-shaped stage and all the livestock, and all the trucks all painted and you know Texas themes i mean it's just it's it's magnificent and it's ridiculous and i just love it
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely and when you think about who their competition was at this point i think led zeppelin did one last tour of the states in 76 or 77 Leonard Skinner is really big, of course, going to end tragically in in early '77. But they're out there and they're touring at and headlining big shows. The Stones are, I think, out there on the Some Girls tour around that time. But that's kind of the league they were in, um, very much at the top of the pile for live touring acts. And this was a period when, like I said, Leonard Skinner was at its peaks, easy top as not quite at its peak cuz they're going to have a second second run in the 80s but just big bigiosity and this is where bill hams artistry as a planner of tours really pays off and and it's just a mammoth tour if you go look at that itinerary it's just incredible that they they were able to pull it off but not without a price cuz at the end of it you know frank beard is is hooked on heroin I love how he describes how you know the first big money he got was a check for seventy-two thousand dollars and spends it all on drugs and you know and by the end of it he's so hooked he's selling his drum kit which is just sad but he he fortunately he pulled up and cleaned up but it, they have to take a three-year break break for him to do it I don't know that it took the whole three years I think he spent thirty days in rehab but um, they don't tell anything else about what Frank was up to during that period. Dusty, though, goes and gets a job at the airport as a baggage handler named Joe, which is just classic,
1: yeah, that's a great part of the story. And he's going to the bar with his coworkers who call him Joe and having beers. And just like being a regular guy, uh, I thought that was real interesting. I also thought Frank talking about his his drug abuse was really refreshing because there was literally there was no feeling sorry for himself was no woe is me there was no you know why did this have to happen to me he's just straight up i loved drugs and i did them as hard yep. as i could until i realized i had to stop and then i stopped but man it was great like yeah heroin, heroin's great it's like a vacation for your
2: mind <laughs> yes the important pro heroin messaging we've been waiting for but it is refreshing <laughs> here because Obviously, the stuff has some appeal, or it wouldn't be so dangerous and And, you know, he's not bullshitting. He talks about how much he liked lSD. You know, and the pills came from the workload and heroin. I just liked it. He said, you know, so yeah, it, the honesty is very refreshing and very revealing. Meanwhile, Billy, Claims that he was traveling the world, you know, he he travels Europe. And I de- he definitely did some of this stuff. Goes to India. He was a big follower of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, like George Harrison and Mike Love and so many other rock and rollers. Um, traveled Europe, uh, supposedly slam danced with the, the punks in London around that time. We know that they shared studio space with orchestral mo- maneuvers in the dark. So it's not exactly, you know jamming with Steve Cook and Paul Jones and the Sex Pistols or the Damned <laughs> or anything, but um, you know, he definitely liked the energy but he was also notorious for paying people to send postcards back to ZZ Top headquarters from places he had never been, so again we'll never know wh- where Billy Gibbons went and where he didn't go, but around this time let me cue one, one more song and then when we come back we'll talk about Bill Ham's greatest business cue of all, but this next one is Nasty Dogs and Funky Kings from the Fandango. And that was Nasty Dogs and Funky Kings from Fandango, which that was the follow-up to Trace Hombres. I misspoke when I said Tejas was the follow-up. Fandango is a really solid album, but half of it's live, half is in the studio. And so there's always been this feeling of, oh, that could have, would have, should have been their masterpiece if they'd just done the whole thing in the studio. But for whatever reason, the live half is really good. Um, but first, before we go into the album a bit, bit more, why did you pick Nasty Dogs and Funky Kings and what should people be listening for
1: well, it is my favorite ZZ Top song. And I, I agree with what you just said, that if they had made a whole record of songs like that in the studio, it would have been amazing. But Fandango still really works as a record. And I think one of the things that's so special about ZZ Top is how, as a trio, they cannot possibly approach the everything that's on the records as a live band so but they just do an entirely kind of different thing as a live band and they crush it they absolutely kill it and then in the studio we do this whole sophisticated overdubbing and and positioning of guitars and really fancy guitar arrangements and I just love that sort of dichotomy about them and this record has it all on the record and Nasty Dogs and and Funky Kings is just a tour de force as far as like what you can accomplish with like an an electric guitar and some space in a sound field and some creativity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, it does give that, the live tracks show you how they filled out their sound as a three piece and it's it's sloppier, it's wilder, it's more free and, and very powerful. And it's one of the... It's kind of marred to me because they do a song called Thunderbird, which they credit to themselves. And that was a song that was written, and they'll admit that it was written, um, by a Texas band. And I'm looking at my notes and blanking on the name. But this band put it out, and um, the Nightcaps was the name of the band. They had two hits. One was Wine, Wine, Wine. That was a regional hit, big hit in Dallas in '50. <laughs> Oh, my dog Preston is too excited about this. Um, and then Thunderbird was their second single, and they put it on an album, but they never copyrighted it. So, of course, Bill Ham is going to steal that copyright. And and they took ZZ Top to court and totally lost because they didn't copyright. So, you know, that's a lesson for anybody in the creative field is, you know, dot those I's and cross those T's because somebody like Bill Ham is out there who will just cold steal your shit.
1: Absolutely. In the grand rock and roll tradition. This would be way more of a ding against ZZ Top if it weren't literally every single one of their peers doing the same thing.
2: Yes, yes. Led Zeppelin being the most infamous director, but that wasn't the big business coup I was referring to earlier, though, because I'm going to have to throw this dog out if he can't slow down, but London Records, London Records, which was a subsidiary of DECA, the British DECA, not the American DECA, and they were on London Records basically because they couldn't get anybody else to sign them. They got signed to London. It worked out great. They did five, six, seven albums, whatever, with London. But then London puts out a greatest hits album without Frank, uh, Bill Ham's approval, and Bill Ham managed to leverage that to not just get free from the contract, but to get their back catalog to take with them, which an incredible coup, especially when you've got you know multiple. I think I think Fandango might have gone platinum, but you know multiple gold albums and a thriving band. So they used that, parlayed that into a bidding war that Warner Brothers won. And Warner Brothers, it's easy to forget, but in the 70s, Warner Brothers was the label. Mo Austin had put together the coolest, biggest, even though they were a major corporation, and they were sort of sister companies with Atlantic and Elektra at the same time, and part of the of, of last <laughs> But they were the record label to be on at the time, the most artist-friendly, the most successful, and ZZ Top was just absolutely a feather in their cap. And it was just really smart for Bill Ham um, to hook up with Warner Brothers and to take the catalog with him. Is just, you know, just genius business, um, just classic Texas Wildcatter maneuver right there.
1: Yeah, it was a major coup, and and Billy mentions in the film. Uh, how important Warner brothers was and like what a big move it was for them to get on Warner brothers. And it's just, you know, as great as easy top are, they're also one of those bands where a lot of things kind of broke their way at various times. And then for them to get on the Warner brothers and for uh, their sort of creative vision to be as flexible as it was at that time and then to sort of move towards the sound they did and then everything else it was just almost like providence
2: yeah they were very lucky and just the timing of their birth the timing of starting their careers um the time they came up everything the people that they got together just the whole bit, destiny, destiny, put these guys together to bring us the rock. And, and I'm very thankful that it did. And they go, you know, after this three year break, they come back with De Geo, which is a very different sounding record. It's not, they're going to get more and more in, into drum machines and synthesizers as they go, but already they've already shared studio space with orchestral maneuvers in the dark. And, and they're open to these influences and there's a new sound and the hits keep on coming. And, um, you know, it builds and builds and builds, but the, the key difference between the Geo and El Loco, which did well but not great, and Eliminator, which is this massive multi-platinum monster. I think it did 20 million albums, it did 10 million albums in the first 10 years it, it was outsold, the diamond certification on beyond platinum. Um the, but the big difference that I talk about in the movie is MTV. MTV comes along. And for so many bands of of ZZ Top's generation, so many guys in their 30s who are putting on a little weight and growing beards and being ugly, MTV was the death knell. Groups like Super Tramp come to mind, just not pretty enough for MTV. But Bill Hamm and Billy Gibbons put it together. They get Tim Newman, who Randy Newman's cousin, who had directed the I Love LA video for Randy Newman. And... They're pioneers of narrative videos and they find the perfect role for ZZ Top in these videos.
1: Yeah, they just got it right away. Billy got it right away. Everyone else understood and they just knocked it out of the park. As you said, they created these these little short films where the band is sort of this mysterious sort of, you know, they're not the active participants in these stories. They're sort of like the troubadour slash storyteller moving through these stories, uh, and they don't get the girl, and they don't whatever. They're just sort of there as witness and and entertainment in these in these little stories, and it's it's just perfect. And the timing is perfect. They make this record. It is like they have the sort of Billy specifically has the the artistic wisdom and the courage to just make this leap with this record. It's totally different. it's totally of the time and it's a huge risk, but they just crush it, knock it out of the park with this record and then as and then immediately see MTV for what it is as the place where they need to communicate this record to the world, and they just do it.
2: Yeah, they absolutely do. And the thing about listening to Eliminator is it's a really good record. And there were a lot of records at the time that did the same strategy. David Bowie's last Let's Dance comes to mind, where the first three songs are the first three hit singles. And that gets you so carried away with how great this record is, you don't notice that there's this massive drop-off in quality. And Eliminator pretty much does that. They put the legs as opens the second side, but... You know, Gimme All Your Love and Bang first song and and, you know, right in there to Sharp Dressed Man is the third song. But the rest of the album is really good. And the first side in particular is really, really good. And so um, it just gets it. Steph's telling me I got a cue. So let's hear Rough Boy from Afterburner. And that was Rough Boy from Afterburner. And when you picked, when you told me you wanted to pick this one, at first I was like, "Not nah, that one." <laughs> but tell us why you picked it.
1: I love it, and it's you know it's sort of as far from those early records as they get with their sound. And uh, everybody's heard everything off of Eliminator at this point, and most people have heard Rough Boy. But I just kind of wanted to sort of. Put something in there as a foil for those those early tunes that are my favorite shit, obviously. But you know, Rough Boy is just—it's super fun and it's ZZ Top, and it's it's so distinctive of its time.
2: Yeah, it, it very much is, and it's also a sweet solo, and, and you picked picked that part to feature. But the thing that struck me going back to listening to Eliminator was the. It's pretty unique. I mean, it's got the drum machines which are very typical of the time, but the guitar attack is so ferocious on that. Ferocious is probably an overstatement, but the guitar attack is serious. It's it's a rock and guitar sound. And to me, that combination of heavy rock and guitars and drum machines pretty unique. Billy Squier is the only person that jumps to mind that was doing similar stuff and not even close to that level. So, quite a feat. But again, we got to bring up another little bit of bad news that they didn't mention in the documentary and that was that this guy lyndon hudson who was living with either frank or dusty at the time and was an engineer and supposedly was kind of the at least according to david blaney the stage manager who wrote the tell-all about him in the 80s that lyndon hudson was definitely the maestro of a lot of the drum machine sounds he was very tight with billy gibbons for several years before eliminator was made and during the making of eliminator And probably co wrote several of the songs. We do know that he went and sued ZZ Top and won a $600,000 settlement for just the one song that he could prove he had co written. So, entirely possible he co wrote some more and kind of a bummer uh, for your heroes to, you know, dis one of their teammates like that and not give him the songwriting credit. But again, compared to say the Rolling Stones, who wouldn't even give fellow band members songwriting credit on songs they had obviously written. And um, you know, it's only rock and roll, which was all parties agree was co written by Ron Wood, but you will not see Ron Wood's name on that copyright. I think I think he got his name on some Mick Jagger, Keith Richards solo song as a trade. But anyway, yeah, like you say, this is this is rock and roll, but just wanted to get that out there, you know, a pretty major um, legal ding.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bummer, and you know, as you mentioned, the Stones, like, the Rolling Stones, probably like spiritually owe Mick Taylor a hundred million dollars that he'll never see. Oh yeah. And you know, it it kind of is what it is.
2: Yep. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a cruel old world, and you know, ZZ Top are not going to be. Uh, exceptions to that but eliminator puts them in this whole other level of celebrity and we haven't even talked about the beards which they they grew on the break they talk about it a lot during the movie they talk about the beards a lot during the movie but they took the 3 years off supposedly just all three grew beards without coordinating with each other. And when they get back, you know, Dusty and Billy have these footlong beards, and Frank has this, Frank Beard has this tiny little beard, and so he just threw in the towel and shaved it. But for the other two guys, it becomes this trademark. And again, it's a perfect visual image for them to become superstars and remain hidden, totally opaque. They've got the beards, the choreography, the the narrative videos, and they just became a, a facet of American life in the 80s that they were just huge. They were on the Tonight Show finally, and you know have a follow up with Afterburner that I think sold five million. Then do a re- Recycler in 1990 that still is doing platinum, and even when their album sales trail off through the 90s, they remain a massive, massive touring attraction all the way up to today. Um, you know, with some, some outs for health. So, you know, one of the most successful rock and roll careers I can think of, unmarred by tragedy just, you know, they had their ups and their downs, but their downs were not very down, just consistent performance, excellence, and success from beginning to end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They never go broke. You know, yep. nobody gets thrown in jail. You know, they take their little break in the late 70s and then come back bigger than ever. And then they, you know, they have their separate tour buses and they get their work done. And they, you know, as as Billy says in the movie, they appreciate getting to do what they get to do.
2: Absolutely, and that's another thing they don't bring up too much. They do mention the separate tour buses, but they don't talk about how there's a big split in the band. And that, that um, you know, Blaley tell, Blaney and his tell-all Blaney refers to the band as having two camps: management and labor and Dusty and Frank are both in the labor side of it, that the management is Bill Hamm, Billy Gibbons, and their top roadie, Pete, that that came up with Billy Gibbons. And then the labor is Dusty and Frank. And it's just like, you know, things like Dusty and Frank both smoked cigarettes. Billy couldn't stand cigarettes, didn't want to be in a car with people smoking cigarettes. They didn't want to listen to him meditate and all that kind of stuff. So just kind of very different personalities in this band. And I think that's another reason Billy puts Dusty and Frank forward in this movie because they're so colorful and so classic Texan and he can kind of, ride on that shine and not really reveal you know I'm the son of a uh, uh, orchestra conductor and this practitioner of transcendental meditation and you know he's a very different character than these other two cats um, but it's a it's a magical combination and it totally works and the beards are the perfect disguise to hide behind
1: indeed and yeah the thing about Billy is that he's a genius and I don't use that word lightly. And what's amazing, what's funny to me, too, is, like, this this movie does a good job of not getting you bogged down into too many talking heads that, you know, they do it a little bit here and there.
2: Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton for one.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure that there's tons of film on the cutting room floor of people calling Billy a genius, and he just has it all cut out.
2: Probably so. Probably so. It certainly didn't make it to the film and tell their story. And I think one of the things about ZZ Top that their genius, their lyrics are clever, but that's not the point. The point is the grooves and the music and the guitar playing. And rock critics at that point in time in the 70s just did not get that. They wanted everybody to be Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen. you got all these English majors. Looking for that kind of literary thing, people who don't know jack about music, and and you know they'd heard the blues before. There's nothing obviously innovative about what C.C. Top is doing, but when you go back and listen, it's almost like a prog band playing the blues. In some points, like "Just Got Paid" is this really angular, weird riff, and so many of their classic songs have these complicated turnarounds. So it's a lot more than just you know the one four five eab right. 7 kind of blue stuff that you might think it is on first hearing, even when they're doing something like swiping the boogie chilling riff from John Lee Hooker for LaGrange, they always add these tasty elements and let's talk about recommended listing before we go. My list, um, Rio Grande Mud, Tres Hombres, Fandango, the best is easy top. That's the one I grew up on. Guayo and Eliminator to me, um, pretty much covers it. And and then live stuff, if you can get your hands on, on some live stuff. What what are your picks?
1: Well, those the ones you you said are all required listening. <laughs> uh, but I think that ZZ Top's first album and Tejas are both outstanding records. I think the first five ZZ Top records as a body of work are just incredible and like kind of unassailable there there's nothing like it out there when you sit and listen to these records carefully they are absolutely singular all five of those records and then getting into de amazing eliminator is is such a, a an amazing record i i didn't listen to it for a long time and then i came back to it in the last few years and i just Absolutely love it. So I want to add first album and Tejas to your list, and then uh, as far as live stuff, there is uh, they did Rock Palast in the early '80s, and I recommend finding it uh, on DVD, or you might even be able to get it. I think on Amazon, but there's a uh, a it's called Live from Texas or Texas Two Step, and it has a, a contemporary concert. Uh, from like the 2010s and then it has the full uh, video of their Rock Palace performance in Germany in 1980 and that totally smokes Uh, so I definitely recommend finding that also you gotta find uh, their version of reverberation by the 13th floor elevators on the uh, Rocky Ericsson tribute uh, where the pyramid meets the eye and And then just yeah, yeah, it's really... That That whole tribute record's amazing. Uh, but then a word to the wise there, you can go on Amazon and for $40, you can buy this box set that's the first 10 ZZ Top records. It's proper mixes on CD. Each CD has the the uh, proper artwork for the record. 40 bucks for 10 CDs. Uh, and they sound correct. Uh, one thing we didn't get into and they didn't talk about in the movie is when these records came out in the 80s on CD, they completely butchered them. Absolutely. Uh, And and it's been a long time coming to get them, to get all that corrected, but you can get it all correct and all in one place on the complete studio albums 1970 to 1990 for 40 bucks.
2: Yeah, excellent recommendation. I'm glad you brought up that whole atrocity because I can remember hearing a CD of Trace Hombres. They added overdubs to that shit. I mean... You know, it's like painting mustaches on the Mona Lisa. It's it's unbelievable. There were a ton of bad CDs that came out in the 80s, reissues, and ZZ Top were among the worst defenders. So, yeah, this complete studio set is a great box. And, Justin, I think that's bringing us to the end of our show. It's been a delight, and we'll be back next time to talk about New York Doll, the documentary about Arthur Killer Kane and his band, The New York Doll. So looking forward to that. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thank you. Texas forever.
0: Oh, yeah. Follow the Let it Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Justin will return to discuss the 2005 documentary New York Doll, which tells the story of Arthur Killer Kane and the New York Dolls. Let it roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let it roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park.